the early scientific male mind likes to separate things. And I think that's how Tom Myers explains anatomy, relative, you know, separationalist anatomy. And that's sort of how I view why we've separated cognitive demands from physical demands. Because like we got to do the exercise piece over here and the cognitive piece over here. And the caveman would look at us and be like, dude, it's just called hunting. There's hand-eye coordination, <laughs> there's decision-making, there's processing speed, there's physical endurance, there's strength, there's power. Like mm. hunting combined cognitive and physical challenges. It's not new, but you know, being humans and scientific and separationalists, we're like, well, you got to do the running part over here and you have to do separately the cognitive part over here. And you have to sit down while you're doing the cognitive part, because if you're running, it's going to be harder to do the cognitive part and become intellectuals and academics. And so I think we're just going, like we're, we're reversing that in a way. We're undoing some of that and systematically bringing it back together. Welcome to This Thing Called Movement, a podcast exploring the medium of movement and looking into how it has the capacity to transform not only our physical bodies, but potentially every other facet of our lives. I'm your host, Marie Janicek a movement guide here to help people find their own unique and authentic relationship to movement through creativity, curiosity, and self-expression. Join me as I dive into deep conversations with a wide variety of individuals from many different fields and backgrounds. Together, we'll gain insight into their own unique movement experiences, the transformations that resulted, and how movement has affected their lives at large. I hope these recorded conversations will inspire and empower you to find your own unique movement journey in your life, in your own way. Hey everyone. So today on the podcast, I've brought on Ryan Glatt as our guest. Ryan and I know each other from a shared certification we went through called Institute of Motion. I've mentioned it with a few other people I've interviewed on here before. And uh, he and I have connected over our mutual love of movement and exercise and how to deliver the best possible outcomes and results for the people we work with in our profession. And what makes Ryan really unique is his positioning within uh, not just exercise and fitness and health coaching, but also taking a deeper look at the cognitive effects of movement and fitness. And he does a lot of work looking at the correlations between movement, exercise, and how it changes the brain, how it has the capacity to change executive functions and and deliberately change the wiring of our brain itself. So we actually spent a lot of time in this conversation getting really nitty and gritty with that specific 
arena that he works in. And we just talked a lot about how movement correlates to executive and cognitive function and why that's important, how to interact with it or engage with it, and everything that's going on in the field around it. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode as much as I did. Ryan was so fantastic to chat with. And feel free to just relax, sit back, tune in, and enjoy. Thank you for the lovely introduction. My background is in health and fitness. I've been working for about nine years as a personal trainer and a body worker. Most of my training was through the uh, Institute of Motion, NASM, NSCA, uh, the Gray Institutes. Uh, those are kind of my parental education units. And uh, <laughs> my body work training is from from anatomy trained and Tom Myers. And so I'd like to think I have the pleasure of just working with some really bright, amazingly talented people and mentors. And um, I've been given the good graces of some skills that I've learned from them in terms of being able to help people from a mostly corrective exercise and pain management point of view. Got into studying pain neuroscience quite quite a bit. Um, And before I got into the fitness industry, uh, I was really interested in animal behavior and psychology. So things are somewhat coming full circle. But about three years ago, I mean, I've always had an interest in the brain. Um, Henceforth, my interest in initially studying psychology and animal behavior. But really, I got bodily focused um, when I lost a bunch of weight from being overweight as a kid. I lost a bunch of weight in my senior year of high school and sort of wanted to help others do it. And so it was very more of an aesthetic rationale. But I grew up with a um, kind of social awkwardness. Um, it's now turned into more uh, social acuity as time goes on, um, <laughs> learning how to manage it. But I, I really attribute my sedentary childhood and adolescence and me being overweight and unhealthy um, and me having a concussion that ultimately led to some concussion-induced ADHD. I cracked my head open in kindergarten, um, chasing a giant bubble of all things. And Whoa. So I, you know, cognitively... Cognitively, physically, and psychosocially growing up, I don't felt I had the, the most enrichment. Um, and so when I kind of turned that around for myself, as I lost a bunch of weight and got more active, I really socially and cognitively opened up. Um, and I may come across as somewhat intelligent now, but I really struggled in school uh, and with my social life back then. And I'd like to say that's changed. Um, and, you know, going that route, I was going for physical therapy and um, it's a kind of a long story, but physical therapy didn't work out for a variety of reasons. Mm. And I, that's when I took up body work and, as an alternative. And so really, the, my alternative to physical therapy school is studying the, the Gray Institute gift program and anatomy trains body work. So mm. it's worked out pretty well because I worked with a lot of PTs and athletes and people that found value in those approaches. And that's stuff they wanted to pursue anyway, even if they were a PT. And so I kind of complemented that nicely. Um, as a as a collaborative treatment effort or as an alternative in some senses. But, you know, doing this for a while, um, to be frank, I got sick of helping rich people with their back pain because that's ultimately what it became. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it's so much more than that, and I find so much depth in the practice, but that's what my practice became. And during that time, I tried to teach them, you know, corrective exercises, 
Uh, I, I would health coach them because I had some training in that as well, primarily from the Institute of Motion, um, but some other educational sources uh, in studying behavior change. So I have, a, I have an affinity for health coaching. I love doing it. I think it's critical to have behavior change if we're going to make uh, an intervention long-lasting and sustainable in terms of its effects. Um, and I think so many other factors have influence things like pain or physical health or cognitive health. And so I really felt that I wasn't getting through to these people. They wouldn't remember the routines or the exercises or have discipline or decision-making skills to execute upon these, these health strategies. And they also didn't have the attention to just pay attention to me while I'm talking to them about their health. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, what, what could I do within my, my realm as a body worker, a personal trainer, and a health professional to help people with these with their cognitive functions and in order to do that i really needed to learn about the brain and how uh the interventions that we utilize such as exercise health coaching and under health coaching could include nutrition sleep hygiene stress management practices um and you know from an exercise prescription standpoint specifically how could i help these people and that has branched out into so much um in terms of you know being able to address certain mental conditions uh, or, or mood disorders such as anxiety depression that's sort of how i started out mm. uh, i eventually got a, a, a specialty certification in autism fitness because that was interesting to me i mean a lot of things became interesting to me I, I got a some sort of a completion certificate and a concussion management course to help people with concussions and wow. return to play and, uh, people with concussion uh post-concussive issues because uh, there's just so much to be done with that population. And just typically, if you go to a fitness professional, they, and you, you have some more concussion or autism or anxiety or depression. There's not a whole lot that they could confidently uh, design a program for, for you. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, ultimately, all these interesting things led to me, um, you know, I have my undergraduate degree in exercise science, and now I'm pursuing my master's in applied neuroscience because I want to see the intersection of our field in the neurosciences, uh, specifically for the people most neurologically at risk. And currently, I'm working in my dream job at the, a place called the Pacific Brain Health Center in Santa Monica, where it's an integrative medical clinic that's in association with the Providence uh, Health System, which is one of the third biggest hospital systems in the nation. And it's an outpatient clinic with neurology and psychiatry and neuropsychology. And we see people with cognitive issues that are worried about having cognitive issues, that currently have cognitive issues like myocognitive impairment, dementia, people with Parkinson, multiple sclerosis. Hmm. Uh, we get a lot of people of that type. So uh, we actually have a program here that I run where it is um, cognitive fitness training. So we combine cognitive stimulus with exercise uh, and brain health coaching. So it's health coaching for cognitive outcomes. And it's an amazing program. It, there's tons of popularity. We're uh, blessed to have some funding to run some studies starting in the new year. And I'm currently working on building out a team to kind of scale this concept within the clinic. And we're, we have the luxury of being able to charge to insurance for things like blood tests and genetic testing, neuroimaging and cognitive testing to be able to have assessments and baselines while we administer these interventions, uh, whether they be exercise-based or health coaching-based. Um, and so that's currently what I'm doing. That's amazing. Um, I didn't realize that it was so involved and so sophisticated, but of course that makes sense. And also knowing you, that makes sense. 
I do have like a few things that really piqued my interest as you were kind of taking us through your journey with movement. Um, and specifically the, the part where you were discussing your relationship with not really being that adept socially, struggling to connect with people socially, whereas now that's actually something that's changed for you. And I can actually relate to that a lot because I always describe my teenage self as somebody you would not recognize as the person I am now because I was so insecure and so self-conscious and so afraid of interacting with people. I, I just always was so stressed out about the right thing to say and how to make people like me. I didn't really have any authority of, you know, my worth in uh, context of other people. And I'm curious, like, what, how did that shift for you? Was it something distinct or like a moment in time or was it a slow progression? And how did you see your relationship with movement shift things on that level? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really play a lot of sports growing up. Um, I, I'm a believer that environment dictates behavior. And I know uh, Michelle Dockworth, who co-founded the Institute of Motion, mm-hmm. says that a lot. And I, I agree with that more and more the more I have hindsight into how things happen. So how I got there, I think I was, you know, enabled socially, familially um, to engage in just video games and not pursue athletics and not be an active person. Um and that just kind of created this cascade of things. Um, and then, uh, ironically enough, I think environment solved the problem. It was myself and a couple other friends who were also sedentary and overweight. And a gym opened up across from my high school. And we just kind of like made this pack and joined one day. And I just like went all the time consistently and mm. put off a bunch of weights. I wouldn't say it was more movement. I would say it was more exercise. Um, and that led to some you know physical cognitive and emotional changes of course movement consists or exercise consists of movement yes Uh, (laughs) but i wouldn't say like expressive or artistic or athletic it wasn't any of that um it was really just go to the gym a lot and Mm. stay with it and that's what happened Uh, it was pretty straightforward actually i think it was just so motivating um, and it also gave me something to do that was productive and I liked how I felt when I did it, that I just kept doing it. Um, and then um, I'm a very scientific grounded person. And so uh, that's where this corrective exercise and pain management thing, I looked at it very objectively and want to understand it better and that type of stuff. So I feel that that's why I went that direction in the industry. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of my uh, relationship with it, I suppose. I wouldn't say it was an intimate relationship with movement. <laughs> um, but now, and then I got into things like Krav Maga and tennis and things that were more, you know, coordinated. And I wouldn't, you look at me and I'm not the textbook definition of fit or coordinated. Um, but I love practicing those things. And I, I just, I think as an, a, uh, a window into movement as an art and an enjoyable thing, I found, you know, martial arts and tennis and things associated like that really playful and really athletic. And that kind of opened up another part of me that I think was important to tap into. And now that I study the effects of exercise on the brain and knowing that more cognitively or coordinatively demanding tasks are better, especially when you enjoy them, um, 
for cognitive outcomes and quality of life and psychological outcomes. Um, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> that, that, that was my perception of those activities. And so, I mean, I don't know if you want me to talk about my relationship with, with it now, but it's a very variable, curious, diverse set of practices. Um, yes, let's... My, my practice of... Let's go into those yeah, because I... Is ADHD embodied. I mean, I'm very distracted and wanting to try everything and stick to nothing, but I love anything that's, you know, my girlfriend's a Zumba instructor, so I will all say, hey, can we do Zumba tonight? And we'll do Zumba in the living room. And then I've been, you know, talking with uh, the fellow who's the director of the UCLA Martial Arts Department. He does uh, Kali or Eskrima, which is... Filipino stick fighting. I've done that. Combines it with cognitive challenges. Yeah, I love that stuff. So I'm really all about it. Oh, wow. Well, one thing that actually really stood out to me in in your uh, unveiling of what the deeper inner workings of this relationship with movement is that you were... You did a superb job of just meeting you your needs with where they were, like meeting your brain and your body with where it was at. So going from really low levels or no levels of physical activity to going into just the gym to do exercise, that was like exactly the dosage of movement you probably needed and were ready to absorb. And it was very consistent and reliable and steady, right? And so then once you've developed that, then it gets easier to be in these more kind of intuitive forms of play, whether it's tennis, whether it's the stick fighting or the Zumba. Um, but this is one thing that I, I think is an important part of your story to highlight because I, I see this a lot being a health coach and a and a personal trainer and a movement teacher that people get really wrapped up and this might just be a New Yorker thing in what's the best way? Like what's, what is the best regime for myself? And it's all about the context and where you're at at that moment in life, because what served you as a teenager may not serve you now, right? Now you're interested in, in bigger, greater things. Like your curiosity is seeking to be, uh, satisfied in new ways and and you need more dimension to what's going on uh, but you know where you were at when you were a teenager that was very relevant for you so I just wanted to take a moment to kind of highlight that because that's something that not a lot of people know how to do um, especially when they're not familiar with movement and I think it's pretty incredible that you were able to do it even as a teenager having really no movement experience yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I think when it comes to autonomy and freedom, that's kind of the stuff I wrestle for in life. And so I feel I was given a sense of that within the context of exercise and movement. And I love learning. I love ideation. And so I kind of poured those strengths, if you will, into the context of movement and exercise. So yeah, that makes sense. Mm. And I, I also remember picking up on the fact that you were interested in pursuing physical therapy. And I'd love to talk more about that because that was an interest of mine. <laughs> uh, I actually had no desire to be in training yeah. whatsoever. 
I wanted to be a physical therapist so that I I could stop getting injured as a dancer. I could fix myself and then become bulletproof. And I thought, well, that would be handy to learn. And then if I end up doing that as a career, that wouldn't be so bad. But I ended up not going that route either, uh, mostly because I, as I got into it, I felt very disenchanted with the whole system. And I felt like it didn't really set people up for the success or the rehabilitation and the progression that I wanted to be able to give them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Um, I don't tend to do well with too much structure, especially if other people are telling me what to do. So (laughs) if we want the outcome of, you know, injury prevention or rehabilitation, I think, you know, without being a physical therapist, we can play a strong role. I think the best scenario is when we're collaborating with physical therapists. I think you see trainers going towards rehab and therapeutic approaches and you see physical therapists going towards training and health coaching approaches. So mm-hmm. I see a lot of merging, and I think it depends on the, the practitioner or the individual to determine the quality, um, but I, I love where it's going. Yeah, but what, what led you to not be in physical therapy? Was it simply that there were too many rules and you wanted more flexibility? So I, I went to live in West Africa, mm-hmm. uh, a country called Gambia, for about a, a year mm-hmm. um, to work in a physical therapy clinic and also work on the, this clean water project. It's kind of a long story, but mm. uh, I ended up there for a year and I applied to physical therapy schools in the U.S. and just didn't get in. I wasn't that academically competitive. I was pretty academically average. Mm. Um, so surprise, first try, I didn't get in. Pretty typical. Um, and I applied to a school in Scotland and got in. After being in West Africa for a year, I flew directly to Scotland, uh, university or Glasgow Caledonian University for a two-year physiotherapy program. It seemed uh, easier to get into. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then, strangely enough, I had the wrong visa out of just ignorance, and I showed up. Uh, This kind of at the peak of the Ebola outbreak, so I'm sure I was a bit sketchy coming from West Africa. (laughs) Um, And basically, they put me in an immigration detention jail for seven days and deported me because I had, like, this visa screw-up. It was pretty weird. Oh, wow. So I was forced. Like, it was... I don't know if... destiny or my idiocracy or whatever uh but essentially i was forced to not attend uh, and that's when i decided to pursue um uh, uh you know body work in the great institute instead <laughs> oh wow interesting yeah so it was, it was a pretty interesting turn of events yeah so one thing i would love to dig into a lot more is um actually what this whole system that you're doing now with uh, using exercise, movement, uh, and training to train cognitive function. So if you could actually elaborate on that, give us some examples of what that looks like, because I think for most of us, unless we see it, it's pretty hard to imagine. Sure, yeah. So well, I guess we have to start with you know the concept of brain health and identify what brain health is. You know, your brain is an organ similar to your stomach or your kidneys, mm-hmm. uh, but it's very unique in the sense it had, you know, neuronal tissues and it's the brain, it's not the stomach, but it is an organ. And as an organ, it has, you know, specific structures and specific functions, and I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. Um, and things that you do with your body influences your brain. Uh, things you eat, the way you sleep, the way you breathe, the way you deal with stress, uh, there's, you know, more top-down processes, I would call the health, look, like the physical nutrition, breathing, exercise-related processes, bottom-up processes, because your body first and brain second. 
with brain first and body second stuff is, you know, psychology and, you know, perceiving information and stuff like that. So, mm. um, you know, the structure and the function of our brain is, you know, research is very clearly demonstrating it's affected by our health, whether it be as something as simple as blood pressure management to something as specific as a supplementation or a, uh, a sort of therapy or different types of specific interventions. Um, and typically in our industry, we don't talk about brain health, even though it makes sense. People are passionate about it when it comes to things like ketogenic diets and supplements mm. and this, you know, things coming out like the Halo Sport, which is transcranial direct stimulation to enhance motor learning. So people are excited about it and all these interesting things with sex appeal when it comes to brain health, because it does have sex appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one's really talking about exercise prescription for brain health. And so... I'm curious as to why that is. And so there's plenty of research as to, you know, the effects of different modalities on cognitive functioning and brain structures. So, for example, there's aerobic exercise, there's resistance training, there's, you know, tennis, coordinative exercises, um, sports-like exercises, things like Tai Chi and dance. And, um, you know, some of them have differential effects. Some of them have similar effects on the brain. Uh, and when I say the brain, it could be cognitive abilities from attention to memory, to focus, to, uh, impulse control, um, to memory. Uh, I mean, it could also be verbal fluency, processing speed, or it could be structural aspects of the brain, like the hippocampus, which is a part of the brain responsible for learning and memory, uh, the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for executive functions, such as planning, organization, working memory and impulse control. It could be, you know, the cerebellum responsible for cognition, emotion, and uh, controlling gross and fine motor patterns. It could be any of those things. So there's there's stacks and stacks of research looking at the effects of these different modalities, both in duration, intensity, type, um, frequency, um, on on these cognitive or structural uh, outcomes, if that makes sense. And so that's one piece of it, which is you know, creating programs like we would for hypertrophy or mobility or weight loss, but doing it for brain health outcomes. Mm. Um, and that could be in general with someone like you or I, or it could be uh, for a specific goal like attention, or it could be for populations like mild cognitive impairment, dementia, traumatic brain injury or concussion, or how to structure an exercise program for someone with uh, current alcohol abuse or anxiety or depression or autism. Um, and so our industry isn't really being outright about how to do that one because there's a lot of you know limitations in the research but with the research that's there there's not a lot of translation of the knowledge into practice Mm. Um, and so it's kind of a double-edged sword if that makes sense yeah that makes a lot of sense Um, to me and it's it's interesting because you know i i always i talk about movement very obliquely and i allow it to be this all-encompassing force we inner we engage with i think it does so much more than just work with our physicality and i think it does more than even just work with our brain health too and people walk around moving in these bodies without ever really being present or engaged or aware of what's going on never really wanting to create that sense of presence and awareness 
and it, it's kind of like what you're saying there's sex appeal in certain things when it comes to brain health and like the supplements and you know like even brain games like what kind of stuff you can do to stave off alzheimer's by solving puzzle what about solving the one of the most complex puzzles out there which is organizing your body in space with different positioning at a specific rhythm time and coherence uh based off of what someone's demoing or showing or teaching you that's one of the most complex puzzles out there and it, it doesn't really surprise me that you know while the research is there uh not not a lot of practical support is being driven afterwards and it's also not very well publicized i'm imagining yeah well i mean it, it's it's a few things and you talked about some principles that might be um evidence-based in some senses um i mean it's a few things some there's research that's out there um, I mean, the case with research is always we need more, we need better research, and we need better sample sizes and better designed research with more randomized controlled trials. Yeah, I think that will always be the case. Um, but it's it's specifically needed within this context of how exercise and cognition interact. But then it's also um, with the research that is out there, there's criticisms on that research. And so if a research paper comes out and says, you know, dance improves executive functions, but the design of the research was not good in it you know, did it really, you know, was mm. it by how much was it 1%? Was it 5%? Did you do a six month intervention? And as you stop the intervention, the benefits go away like physical conditioning. And then, um, you know, it can, you can increase it by 5% with da- dance. And this isn't a real example. I'm just hypothesizing. Here. Yeah. And then you can increase it with 25% with healthy sleep. And so where do we <laughs> put our energy and time to get this return on the, the cognitive investment, if that makes sense. So mm. there are, um, there, there is some debate, heated debate. And if, it, if it's a field, the, you know, neuroscience slash exercise field, um, between some of these researchers, on what components of an exercise program would have the best cognitive benefits. And, you know, essentially there are various principles. Um, and, and these studies also look at brain training um, as well. And one of the researchers who's looking at this stuff is uh, someone named Adele Diamond. And she was one of the, she's, she's been named the, the godmother of executive functions. So she's, studied uh, the effects of exercise on cognitive functioning kids and older adults for a long time. And she wrote a paper um, in 2015 called Conclusions About Interventions, Programs, and Approaches for Improving Executive Functions that Appear Justified and Those That Despite Much Hype Do Not. Hmm. Um, And essentially, she, she discusses how she basically rips apart the research that aerobic exercise improves cognitive functions, specifically executive functions, and she calls it mindless aerobic exercise, meaning there's no cognitive demand. And mm. she kind of proposes, and I disagree with some of her stuff, but I agree with a lot of what she's saying, where essentially, um, you know, there's a lot of great interest in improving executive functions because it dictates success better than IQ or socioeconomic status. And so that's pretty valuable. Yeah. And so how can it be improved? And she, in this paper, she, she not only reviews exercise, but cognitive training programs like the brain games because there's a lot of hype there and i mean really just to save the lecture multimodal programs um meaning ones that consist of cognitive training health coaching nutrition and exercise and combinations thereof so in our example we're combining 
cognitive stimulation and exercise together, um, those are the best. The multimodal programs are mm-hmm. the best, and that makes sense because that's how we would probably apply it in reality. Um, but the specifics of those multimodal programs still need to be researched. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and that's some of the research we're doing at the Brain Health Center as well. Um, but, you know, if, if we have someone who's stressed or sad or lonely or in poor health, um, th- that impairs executive functions and, uh, you know, reverses any enhancement of executive functions. So let's say we're doing this great cognitive physical exercise and it makes sense. It could be something as straightforward as dance or martial art. Um, but these people have stress, sadness, loneliness, or poor health. Uh, that may not, which have been proven to affect the brain negatively if those things are in place, and the opposites of those, you know, happiness, stress management, social connection, and good health all improve cognitive function, and this cognitive, this cognitively enhanced exercise would just be a tool to maintain or improve that further, if that makes sense. Yes. So, um, I hope I didn't ramble there. No, no, not at all. Keep going. More rambling, yeah. please. Uh, and so, so, yeah, so, so, so really some of the things that she outlines, um, you know, really the strategies that she says may improve executive functions are ones that are more cognitively stimulating, things that incorporate bimanual coordination, hand-eye coordination, um, strategizing. Um, I mean, I could go on and on, but these are all things that are important. Um, and, you know, sometimes if we see an improvement, it may not be because the martial art or dance intervention, for example, is effective. It could be because the instructor is really passionate and believes it's going to make a difference. And mm-hmm. so some of the psychosocial relationships within that intervention can, can make a difference. Um, you know, so, so those are things to require, uh, not require, but things to observe and consider. Um, and so, you know, these, these things are very complex. They're not as straightforward. But we know for sure when people exercise, it's usually not that cognitively demanding with the intention of improving cognitive functions. Mm-hmm. And from a health coach perspective, we're not look, usually looking at improving cognitive functioning or executive functioning with the uh, health strategies that we're trying to recommend or apply. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, that's so true. I, I Even with what uh, my position as a health coach and a personal trainer enables me to do, I often feel very limited by all the stuff on the outside that I know is influencing this person's well-being. And for me, that was probably been the greatest struggle in my in this line of work is being uh, so aware of how there's so many elements to health that go beyond just the body, right? And I can be giving somebody exercise protocol to follow with me and without me. I can be giving them... Uh, nutritional advice and coaching uh, to help them be eating better. I can give them advice on sleeping strategy, all this stuff. Uh, but then there's all this, there's just like everything is so interconnected and, and it's all moving at the same time and it's all fluctuating at the same time. And it's, it's really difficult to get a sense of like what specifically is creating that outcome. And and that's something I've noticed myself shift into uh, with my line of work. And as I'm as I'm trying to create more of a body of work that's surrounded around working with movement as a relationship versus just exercise, and then 
allowing that relationship to be dictated based off of your emotional connection or feeling in the process of navigating it. I've noticed that's been very interesting to me because there I'm immediately playing into something more internal that we know has an effect, right? Like you said, that state of being, somebody feeling happy, joyful, healthy, um, connected, socially competent. Those are very important signatures that help with brain health. And I always observe that they help tremendously in somebody's overall movement quality and coherence. And um, it's just really fascinating to hear from your side that, that that actually seems to be what's the hardest thing to observe when you're looking at executive function in the brain and how it's affected by movement or all these other mediums because it's just so infinitely complex. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, we know these things are important, um, but it's got to be more than that. And I think what will help us uh, make it more than that is assessment. And Mm -hmm. one thing we do here at the Brain Health Center is we do cognitive assessments. We do, uh, you know, subjective surveys on things like quality of life and mood. And uh, we'll do blood tests and hormone tests and neuroimaging and I recognize that not everyone will have that, but everyone has access to something like that in some form. Um, and I think that having more assessments for, I mean, the process you just described is why we have different movement assessments. Movement mm-hmm. and the body is complex and without assessments, we don't know where to start. And without interviewing the client or patient in a way that's encapsulating of all these potential things, I mean, how many clients do you get that come to you to specifically improve their cognition? Hmm. Um, not that they don't have a cognitive goal. It's just that conversation has never been started, right? And so yeah. if you start that conversation, you might be aware that they come to you for fat loss, but really they might be depressed or they have other goals that they didn't think were within your scope or within the appropriation of your professional relationship. And as long as you stay within your scope, I mean, but I was just reading a book about, you know, mental health recommend or exercise prescriptions for various mental health conditions and so uh, as long as you're educated and you have a good scope of practice and you're making sure you stay within that scope and you work with allied mental health professionals and uh you know neurologists and psychiatrists as appropriate Mm -hmm. uh, there's no reason you enter that conversation in these different subpopulations um it's just we don't have we don't have the systems put in place from our perspective of our industry yeah so it just really takes including assessments and conversations to make this more precision oriented so it's not as out there um and the reason i say that is because you know what if you say oh it's all about you know mindfulness for instance and you give someone mindfulness but really the reason their sympathetic nervous system is so driven is maybe there's a cardiovascular uh health risk or something that's interfering with autonomic nervous system function but you're just convinced from hearing all the research that they just need to keep meditating but what if they need a more active intervention than that? You know, mm-hmm. so there's so many things that could play a role that in order to have this like precision approach, we need better assessments. And I think trainers and health coaches and health professionals need to take more of an initiative to work with allied health professionals to get those if it's outside their scope. Definitely. So true. Uh, so yeah. this this actually brings me into uh, another sector of conversation. Uh, this is one of the big questions in my life that I I just find the most fascinating because it's so different from person to person. So I would love to hear your response and uh, how would you 
describe movement or define it? And what does movement mean to you? Looking at movement from the perspective I do, it's, I used to think it was just, I look at it the bias of physical outcomes. Um, the way I look at movement now, I think movement is a medium in which to explore and interact with the world and is therefore a tool for our health and therefore evolution. Hmm. So if we did not have movement, I don't, if, I don't think if whatever, you know, whatever your religious or evolutionary beliefs, whatever preceded us, if it did not move, we would not be here. And so it's clearly an evolutionary tool. Um, and I think, you know, better health is associated with more evolution. If we were to take that perspective, if it's appropriate. And, um, you know, it allows our brains and bodies to adapt in a beneficial way or not um, relative to um, biological fitness, being able to adapt and evolve and spread our seed. And that's what movement is for. Mm. Um, I think that as we, you know, the very, um, the early scientific male mind likes to separate things. And I think that's how Tom Myers explains anatomy um, relative, you know, separationalist anatomy. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how I view uh, why we've separated cognitive demands from physical demands because like we got to do the exercise piece over here and the cognitive piece over here and the caveman would look at us and be like dude it's just called hunting there's hand-eye coordination (laughs) there's decision making there's processing speed there's physical endurance there's strength there's power like Mm. hunting combined cognitive and physical challenges it's not new but you know being humans and scientific and separationalists we're like well you got to do the running part over here and you have to do separately the cognitive part over here and you have to sit down while you're doing the cognitive part because if you're running it's going to be harder to do the cognitive part and become intellectuals and academics and so i think we're just going like we're we're reversing that in a way we're undoing some of that and systematically bringing it back together now i can't just tell everyone to go hunt and do martial arts not not everyone will relate to that so we have to make it relatable in many ways and so i I just believe movement is a a a medium or a vehicle for evolution and in order to have that evolution we need to have health and so i don't think it's a surprise that uh you know we are now looking and understanding movement as an intervention for brain related or even gut related issues i mean Mm. there's so much coming out on treating the microbiome with exercise and um in order to acquire food we need movement and so i don't want to you know, drill the metaphor into the ground, but that's what I believe it's it's for. Well, I actually really love specifically even the wording you said is it's a medium to explore and interact with the world um, because even evolution, I think progression on any level, uh, whether it's life force and an evolution or just like you know, development in your lifetime as a human being, it's never linear, right? There's ups and downs, there's there's hills, there's valleys. And um, like you said, sometimes your interaction with movement creates something good and sometimes it doesn't. But that idea that it's that medium to facilitate exploration and interaction, that I really love in particular. And, and the thought of it as an evolutionary tool definitely makes sense if you if you look at the process of evolution it's all been facilitated through movement 
And I even I even like to get gritty with it on a cellular level. Um, our own health is facilitated by movement, like a fluid exchange. Um, you know, all those electrical impulses that are happening within the body. Uh, all all that micro stuff also has movement in it, and it's interesting to watch how that interplays between the macro of like actually moving your physical body in space. Absolutely. It's like uh, that movie Osmosis Jones where it like zooms into the animated cells, right? Yeah. <laughs> probably, probably a little bit more artistic, cooler than what you're saying. But, no, I, I totally agree. And that's kind of like what I see. Uh, I, I think it's so fun to get lost in those, those visual metaphors. Mm-hmm. And I love when people make like these computerized renders that actually looks like because it's just so cool to see. Um, like with fascia, for instance, we're starting to have better endoscopy and visualizations of that. But mm. um, I mean, it, it's also true for the brain, what you're describing. When we exercise, we have increased blood flow and changes in brain activation and the generation of new cells uh, through neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, synaptic plasticity, um, the rewiring of different neurons together in different ways, uh, the, the increasing of actual brain structures. Um, you know, the releasing of chemicals and the change in the density or sensitivity of the receptors for those chemicals. Um, I mean, it just goes on and on. It's all very interesting stuff and all could play potential mechanisms and overall leading to overall improved health and therefore evolution as if we need to take over the world any more than we're doing now. <laughs> well, you know, um, but like, you know, you know I, I think that, you know, right now we've, we've gone so far away. We, we're so busy with world takeover and we're no longer healthy. So I think that's the effect. Yeah. Well, it's interesting as you're saying all that with like the visual, you know, I would, I would love if like there are a way to get like scans of my brain throughout my lifetime as I interacted with different movement mediums, because as you're talking, I was thinking about, in, I know what always set me apart from other people in my movement experience was that it was the one place I always felt completely at home with myself. So movement was kind of my lifeline throughout my whole life, especially through uh, childhood and young adulthood. And I, whenever I stepped into movement practice, which was initially mostly dance, my, like every bit of my awareness and my brain was in the experience of movement. And, and then moving into personal training where I was working with resistance training and cardio in a real way for the first time, it was such a, such a multi-layered experience to be experiencing movement in a whole new way. And I, this may sound silly, but like I could feel that my, how my brain was involved with that was so different than back when I was dancing all the time. Um, and even different kinds of dance initiated a very different kind of response. Like working through ballet progressions at the bar was so vastly different than improvisation or contact improv or performing a piece on stage or learning a piece for an audition. And You know, now I just see that deepening for myself even more and more as I continue to explore other mediums. Uh, For me, you mentioned Kali uh, or the stick fighting, and I I got to dabble in that. And that was probably one of the most stressful experiences I've ever had with movement. Uh, Not not because I felt like I was in danger, but because it was literally the polar opposite of my comfort level and what I was familiar with. Because it was improvisation at the complete reverse end of the spectrum, where 
the kind of improvisation I got to interact with with dance was fun, floaty, feel good, interesting shapes, creativity. And with, you know, martial arts, it's survival, survival, survival. And I never, never interacted with movement. (laughs) Go ahead. The the way way you just described dance is actually how I would describe my experience with martial arts. Mm. Fascinating. Expressive and artistic and creative and fun. And so, you know, I think once again, the way you were taught. So, for example, uh, some there's I think some research I can't cite it from memory, but um, I believe it was you know they compared the effects on cognitive abilities of Taekwondo as a physical activity versus Taekwondo as a tradition mm. you know, in a competitive sport, and the the latter was actually more detrimental than it was helpful. Hmm. Interesting. It, very very interesting stuff. So yeah, I, you know the guy I learned from. Uh, Paul, Paul McCarthy, if you look him up, he had this TED Talk or has this TED Talk called Cognitive Kali. Hmm. And the way he explains it is much more playful and fun and creative and draws many, many similarities to dance. And I love training with him. And when I do, I just have a blast. Yeah. Um, I'm I, not that competitive, but it's, it's so much. It's, to me, it's, it's dancing with sticks. That's yeah. what it was for me. And I... You know, so your experience can change based on who's teaching you. That's true. Um, and that's why I think it's so unique about those modalities that we can take the best parts of them and put them in any context with mm. a coach where you have rapport and your style is anticipated and it can be delivered in, in a coherent way. Well, I loved learning the movement sequences. Like that was, oh my God, loved it. And then this, but I would get thrown into sparring like every time. <laughs> And I would say most of the time was always sparring. And I was the newbie. Like, I'd, this was like a very small group of people I was uh, training this stuff with within the Equinox community at the time. And and I just remember anytime the sparring happened, it was just like the, the response of fuck, 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 shit, shit, shit. Like, <laughs> um, and, and just getting yeah. whacked. And I had the professional, I had like the protective gear, but still like the fear of getting whacked. It was like, yeah. it, it was just so intensified. But anytime outside yeah. of that, just moving, that was like beautiful. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah, it's really nice. And the way I'm learning it is very uh, non-sparring, sometimes on your own, just practicing movement patterns. And I love it. I mean, I, sometimes I wake up and I just do some of these, these patterns. It's really, really fun. So look it up, Cognitive Colleague. Really All good. right, uh, cool. I'm going to be doing some of that. The brain health. Well, I'll leave that yeah. in the show notes for everybody to check out as well. Uh, so moving on. Yeah, if there's, you know, for, for yourself, for yourself and other, you know, health and fitness professionals, um, there's so many questions about, you know, how to uh, understand the brain more and program for brain health and, you know, learn how to combine cognitive techniques with uh, recognizable functional exercises like lunges and push-ups and squats and how do we enhance an existing exercise program with cognitive stimulus. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't, uh, I didn't mention it to you yet, but uh, I'm actually coming out with an online course and certification Ooh. for this in February. It's hopefully going to be launched by late February that covers all this stuff. Mm. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have details for that for anybody who wants to gravitate. That's very exciting. Woo-hoo. Well, yeah. It's a much more sustainable way to share this information. So we're, we're excited to uh, break the ice in the industry with this. Oh, yes. Awesome. So exciting. Uh, yeah. 
Well, this is actually a cool segue into next question, Ryan. Are you ready? <laughs> uh, me, yeah. What has been the greatest gift movement has given you? Uh, wow. I mean, I think without movement, I wouldn't be where I am. So it's given me a career and a strong purpose and uh, a way of helping others that I don't think I could have otherwise. Mm. Um, and it's... <laughs> It's given me my body and my brain. <laughs> it's really, oh, I mean, wow. If I, if, I, if I had the body I still have growing up, I don't think I'd be the same person. And it's, it's helped me with my psychology and my cognition. I mean, it's, it's given me everything. I think without movements, I would just not be doing what I'm doing or be who I am. Hmm. So it's given me a lot. It's given me a lot more than weight loss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's such a beautiful response. I mean, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about that for myself. Um, not in context of this question, actually, but I just kind of realized, oh, this thing that I was invited into by my babysitter when I was three years old totally changed the course of my whole life. And uh, I've been fortunate enough to been, been a- to have been able to allow this obsession and this excitement to proliferate into every single component of my life. And, you know, I have so much gratitude for the fact that not only do I get to uh, earn a living with movement, working with people, but then I also get to do something like this, where I have these conversations where I talk about my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, couldn't get any better, really. The fact that I get paid for this is just ridiculous. And amazing. <laughs> Mostly amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's great. So. No complaints. No complaints. Awesome. Well, that being said, uh, as we wrap things up here, Ryan, are there any final thoughts or words of wisdom you would like to offer listeners when it connects to taking care of themselves, maybe taking their own brain health into their hands um, and connecting with movement more? Sure. Movement specifically or brain health in general? Really, whichever one you want to run with, whichever one speaks to you. Okay. Okay, sure. So I guess I would say if everyone could write down, you know, five five categories or five buckets, uh, and they would be the following. Exercise, nutrition, stress management, sleep, and cognitive stimulation. And mm-hmm. cognitive stimulation could it be anything from learning new language, these cognitively enriched activities, physical or otherwise, socialization, intellectual stimulation. Um, I think the other ones are pretty straightforward. If you write those down and you uh, kind of identify your strengths and weaknesses in each of those buckets Mm -hmm. and identify what you think uh, of all those buckets where the number one place to start is that will affect all other aspects of your health, whether it be just improving sleep or varying or diversifying your, your exercise routine or getting more social stimulation or mm. you know, better managing your stress because you're busy doing all those other stuff, all yeah. those other things. Um, you know, pick the lowest hanging fruit that you think would have the biggest ripple into other aspects of your life and focus on that. Amazing. Such great, such a great place for people to start. Uh, so, uh, as we, as we wrap up here, uh, is there anything 
left on your mind that you would want to share or uh, maybe you mentioned this new course that's coming out actually this online course and certification is that specifically for people who are certified trainers coaches therapists or could anybody be involved with that I know not at all actually where our intention is for you know you should be a health professional serving some sort of uh, population, you know, from a health perspective, mm-hmm. but, you know, we actually have interest from nurse practitioners, people working in uh, senior care homes, physicians, um, because this is kind of a general set of evidence-based or evidence-led guidelines and assessments for exercise recommendations. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, I mean, that can apply to so many people. We have interest from mothers with kids with ADHD, to those same mothers having postpartum depression and not being satisfied with their exercise uh, routine relevant to that. So, I mean, really it could be anybody, uh, but we are gearing it towards the the health professional. Um, It could be really any health professional, I think, could justify taking this course. Amazing. Uh, But we are gearing it towards towards personal trainers uh, and and movement professionals. But essentially, you know, there's going to be three-fourths of the courses science and application in terms of exercise prescription and then one fourth of the course is actual cognitive physical exercises that are broken down into different categories as techniques and those things can you know we can remove we're thinking about removing that module so it's applicable it's almost optional if you're a health and fitness professional to add that module on that makes sense yeah that does uh so if people want to get in touch with you directly and they really love hearing about you and all the work you're involved with, where can we find you? Uh, yeah, you can go to ryanglatt.com, mm-hmm. uh, R-Y-A-N-G-L-A-T-T.com, uh, and that will have all my social blogs, announcements, and all the good stuff. All right. And do you have like an email list people can sign up for? Yeah. Great. Awesome. So uh, Yes, I do. Yeah. We'll make sure to send people there. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ryan. This was so great. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I love what you're doing with this. Oh, thank you. All right. That's it. That's a wrap. We did it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode on this thing called movement. I'm your host, Marie Janicek. And if you're interested in connecting with me directly, you can find me on Facebook under the name Marie Janicek and on Instagram at Marie Janicek. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and make sure to share with your friends and family. In the meantime, I can't wait to connect with you all next week when we bring on our next guest. Until then... Make sure to get out there and move.